morning once again. I recognize some of us are just now joining us and just want to send, extend a special welcome to you. Please do keep your Bibles out if you would. We're going to be looking at these passages directly. I am very excited for today. I have loved preaching through Exodus over the last, oh, I don't know how many weeks. Um, we have finished through Exodus 1 through 15, um, and that's actually the norm here at Bayless, is to preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse through verse, which may not be how you're used to, again, churches structuring their, structuring their sermons. Maybe this is the first time you've been in a church for some time, so, but, and you don't know any differently. That's normally how we do it. We allow God's word to lead. That means we can't skip over the uncomfortable bits, and we find that God surprises us in his timing. But this morning, we're going to actually switch into a do something different we don't usually do, again, for the next 10 weeks to focus on one topic on the church. And I realize it might be strange for some of us, why the church? Of all times, I mean, right now, isn't there other things that we could spend 10 weeks looking at? Why not relationships? Why not justice? Why not the end times? Why not mothers, right? Why the church? After all, some of us, we can't remember a time in our lives in which we were not in a church. I mean, isn't a series like this better, to be honest, for the people who are not here? And some of us uh, were just a bit jaded, though, when it comes to the church, particularly when it comes to belonging to one. Given what we're seeing in society right now, we might be concerned that the church as a thing is on its way out. Well, others of us aren't sure, I mean, we, we're not necessarily are, are opposed to the church. We don't necessarily have baggage with the church. We're just not sure why it matters all that much, why it's, it's especially showing up here to belong to one, to commit to one. After all, who wouldn't rather have their cup of coffee on the couch listening to songs that they would, that they were able to pick and listening to a well, just to be honest, a better preacher than the one they usually have. Isn't it easier than trying to drag your stinking kids out of the house? Isn't it easier than sitting next to him when you know what he posted on Facebook just this week? He drives you nuts? Isn't it easier to belong from a distance? Why a series on a church? I'll give you many practical reasons including the fact that we're experiencing a mass emptying of our local churches in the United States more than ever before by some statistics over the last couple of years since the pandemic began our churches are a third lighter a third lighter most of my peers who are pastors as well their churches are a third less in attendance this side of the pandemic those who are looking for an exit ramp have taken it. There's plenty of practical reasons to talk about this, but actually that's not the reason why we're preaching on this today. My reasons are actually much deeper than that. Why a series on the church? Because of what the church is and what a rich gift it is according to the Bible. According to the Bible, the church is not only far more than it appears to be, and it's far from, not only far from being on its way out, but the church is bound up with the gospel itself. It's actually impossible to understand the gospel as Jesus preached it, and the New Testament assumes it, without understanding the church as one of its chief products. One of the things that is given birth to by the gospel. The church is what God intended for 
his gospel to produce. It's not just a fringe benefit or a part of a package deal. It is the new family that God has saved for himself, saved by the power of God, for the purposes of God in the world. It is what the gospel builds and gives birth to. It is where the gospel is made visible. In fact, it is not too extreme to say that the local church is the hope of the world. I get that you think that that's my job to say. A pastor who makes a living in serving the church, it feels a little bit of self-protective, doesn't it? <laughs> to say something like this, some of us are secretly wondering, is there a, like a hidden giving campaign at the end of all of this? There's not, I'm just going to tell you. And I, I don't need to pretend that we all agree with this, that the church does matter, or that even if you do agree with this in theory, that your emotions and your priorities correspond to it. But over the next 10 weeks, I hope that changes. Regardless of what season of life you're in, regardless of how long you have belonging, been belonging to a church, I hope your understanding and your priorities begin to change and adjust as you begin to see why the church matters more than ever. I hope you see why it matters to Jesus, why he determined it was worth shedding his own blood for, purchasing for himself, why a Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble, but even more importantly, what joy Jesus has in store for you if you take him at his word. I hope you come to cherish the church as much as Jesus does, and your church particularly. As messy as belonging here at Bayless Baptist or another church can be, and it's always messy, I hope you come to cherish it as much as Jesus does, and in doing so, that this place shines as a place where heaven touches earth. Today, we're going to start by defining this family. It's the first question we are going to be answering, if you want to go to that title slide for us. What or perhaps it's better to say, who is the church? We need to define this family. Um, I want to encourage you, by the way, uh, one resource we have for you to help you um, in preparing every week is we've got a bookmark at these, this table. It'll talk about what the 10 questions are we are going to be looking at together, even the passages that we will be preaching on. I won't be the only one preaching in the series. You'll hear from some of our other uh, pastors as well. Um, I want to encourage you to grab that, but today we're focusing on that first one. Uh, what or who is the church? And we're going to do so in three parts. Uh, what is God building? Number two, how is he building it? And number three, how can we experience it? You ready? Let's get to it. First Peter chapter two, verses four through ten, beginning with that first question, what is God building? Now, the book of First Peter it's a letter, actually, written by the person, the, where the title of the book comes from, and Peter himself, one of the three apostles, the closest apostles of the twelve, um, to Jesus. And he wrote this book to a group of Christians who honestly are a bit battered because of their faith. They're suffering and struggling and wondering if it's worth it. They're finding that their faith in Jesus and public belonging to a church it seems maybe in Rome, has not just made things awkward for them in their relationships, it has made their lives very difficult. Now, things aren't as bad as they soon will be for Christians 
under the uh, government-sanctioned violence of Caesars like Domitian. But still, according to historian John Eliot, these readers, who Peter is writing to, were receiving a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean, discredit, and shame the believers as social and moral deviants endangering the common good. Again, the watching society looked at Christians as social and moral deviants who were a danger to the common good. In many ways, you could say that our culture is beginning to head this same direction. Fifty years ago or so, it used to be that belonging to a church might help you get a job. I mean, some of us might have put that on our application. It may have helped you get approved for a bank loan or help you get elected to Congress. Is that the same today? I heard somebody laugh at that, right? It is it once was, was seen as part of being a good citizen, was belonging, being a member of a church. And there were pressures to belong to a church, even if your faith wasn't genuine, which we're experiencing the collateral damage of today. Many who identified because it was socially advantageous and no longer, it, it just no longer is. It's increasingly so, especially in cities like St. Louis, where we are around more options of how to structure our lives and find meaning. The winds have changed. Today, church membership makes you seem at least a little backwards. I'd say that for sure among my peers. Maybe even untrustworthy. And citing the Bible, where it used to be valued, it used to be a, some, at least the ethics and morality it was teaching would be a common baseline for us to argue from. Now, in many ways, to cite the Bible is seen as a danger to the common good. Religious allegiance Increasingly so is seen as something that is to be to remain in private out of the workplace out of public conversation and for sure out of politics There is increasingly social pressure not to belong to a local church, but to shame Christians to shame believers to be on the so on so-called the right side of history It's okay if it helps them to sleep at night, but it better not come out when it messes with the lives of others. Peter writes to those who are finding that their faith has marginalized them and are perhaps, because of that, beginning to drift away from the faith they once cherished. And now he, Peter responds by reminding them of whose they are, whose they always have been, of what it means to come to Jesus and how to, what it means to, and to also be swept into a much grander story that God is writing, something much bigger than any individual who is involved. And he does so through a fascinating, though honestly, just to be honest, a bit confusing and maybe hard to relate metaphor. As we went through this passage today, I hope you picked it up, that of a building project commissioned and being completed by God himself. Throughout the Bible, we have several fantastic metaphors because the Bible, again, the authors of the Bible know it's hard for us to conceptualize what the church is and how it structures and why it is really the hope of the world. So he uses these metaphors to help us understand. Throughout the Bible, again, you have some of, we're going to refer to some of these throughout our series. The bride of Christ, a love relationship. Uh, the body of Christ, a body on action. A, a, uh, a, the pillar and buttress of the truth. A heavenly city, the light of the world. But what's going on with this one? I mean, the church is a building? 
As some of you know, um, my, over the past year and a half, I have, I have been working to slowly renovate our basement. Emphasis on the word slowly for grace. I have to tell you, I am not someone you want to hire as your general contractor. Some of you are like, oh, I can tell that by looking at you. It seems like every week I am, I'm actually tearing out the work that I just finished, uh, that my plans are always changing, uh, pulling out my hair as I, I, I realize yet one more thing I didn't keep in mind in my planning. Here we have the exact opposite picture of God, the great master builder whose plans are not only perfectly laid out, but perfectly executed, unlike mine. Only what he is building is not a physical house or a physical structure, but what Peter calls a spiritual house made up of, as strange and mysterious as it sounds, living stones laid one upon another. It's a strange image if you think about it, and to understand it, we actually need to go backwards in our Bibles, back to the history of Israel, back to a particular building that was built from stone, laid upon stone, laid upon stone, a place called the temple. Now, in many ancient societies, including in ancient Rome, temples were the center of the city, a place where business was done, and the gods of a city were appeased that you would offer sacrifices and do a plenty of other unmentionable things uh, in order to keep the gods happy so that your life might be stable, your life might be peaceful, your life might be full of crops and babies, that you might at least have not too much suffering this year. But Israel's temple had a much more central function than that. It was not just seen as the heart of the nation, uh, the hub around which the spokes of Israel spun, but it represented the inbreaking of God into the world. The pulling back of the curtain on something supernatural. It was where the maker of heaven and earth set foot upon what he had made. It was a place where mercy and holiness met, where the full power of God that we've longed to experience dwelt in thick, overpowering glory. In fact, when the glory of God fell upon the temple throughout the scripture, you know what everyone had to do? Get the heck out of Dodge. They had to leave the temple because it was not safe for them to belong. The temple was where heaven touched earth why you hear David say things like in Psalm 27 verse 4 if we can put that verse on the screen one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after again one thing I've God I've asked one thing I've sought one thing what is it that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple for in the temple God's people together met and worshipped God in the temple, they, they would have God himself. According to Peter, the great master builder is, though, building something even more wondrous than that temple. He's building something new, something, in fact, better. A true building, Peter says, 
that God is intentionally building, that that temple was only a pointer to. It was only a signpost of. And, and what is that temple? What is this spiritual house, this place where God's presence would reside, where heaven would touch earth? Look to your right and to your left. The Bible says, again, you're looking at it. The church is where God has chosen to show up and show off in our world, just as, and in fact, even a more profound way as he did in the temple. I don't mean these walls. They're not that impressive to look like, to look at. In fact, that would exist if we were sitting on tin cans out in uh, Forest Park. What is beautiful, where God is showing up and where he is chosen, again, for the maker of heaven and earth to set foot upon what he has made is among you. I have to tell you, that sounds very strange to many people. I, not just those who are very skeptical about Christianity, but to, to many Christians themselves, maybe even to you. For many, the church is just, it's an, it's a lifeless thing. It's an outdated thing. It's maybe an interruption to where we're going as a society. Well, for others, it's just not all that necessary. The church is, friends, uh, not a building, according to the Bible. It's not an event. It's not a set of programs. It's not a political action group. It is not a self-help club. It is not a community service organization. The church isn't simply a gathering place for those with common interests or particular backgrounds or political opinions. It's not particularly a gathering of those who have the same music style in mind. It is not a meeting in which you would find merely a sense of inspiration or entertainment or coaching on how to navigate life. If that was what the church was, any of those things, then yes, I have to tell you the church is on its way out. And, and can I just put it this way? It would be worth giving up on. If that's what the church is, then it is, it is not worth giving your time to. It is not worth sacrificing for. It is not worth prioritizing, having reshape your, your money, your time, your emotional energies. And yet, if friends, if, if you've someone who's prided yourself on gave up on the church a long time ago, if that's what you had in mind of the church, you didn't really actually give up on the church at all. Not really, not what it really is. According to the Bible, the church is something more, something much more supernatural, something that is bound together and built by God himself. According to Jesus, the church is something that he is building. In fact, he says to Peter, he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Whose idea was it? Whose imagination came up with it? Who is responsible for building it generation after generation after generation? I need the Sunday school answer here. Jesus is responsible for it. Who loves it? He does. More than you. More than me. He is the champion. He is the sustaining light of his church. And he has great purposes in store for her. According to G Jesus, again, the church is something his, he is building. It is his family. It is his people. A, let's just be honest. It's a really messy group of people. I mean, can I get an amen? I mean, it's a really messy, as, me as messy as the first followers were of Jesus. Okay, just let me encourage you to go back to your Bibles and read with this lens of what it was like to be part of the early church. I have many who were like, wouldn't it be so wonderful to get back to the days of the early church? I'm like, I mean, 
getting back to the days where they were some a guy was sleeping with his mother-in-law and they were suing one another and and they were dividing over they were getting drunk at the communion table i mean that church is that the church you want to go back to I mean, it was just a mess the wild wild west or wild wild mid-east middle east i guess but nonetheless it's the church has always been a messy place as um but it is a people nonetheless that god is determined to build together as the as both the evidence and the means as strange as it sounds the evidence and the means of his kingdom breaking through of his power showing off and showing up in the world the church is his home of all places he could choose to show up this is his home and he's been building it long before us and will be building it long after us the place where heaven meets earth Certainly, this refers in one sense to the universal church, the global family by which we refer to every Christian throughout time that he has been gathering to himself. God is working in and through a global universal church. There are plenty of texts that emphasize this. It's remarkable that uh, includes you, if you're a Christian today, just as it includes the believer you never met 2,000 years ago. One day there, you will be part of a wonderful and massive family reunion. That, that universal church is made up not just of over time, but over space and place. It's just as much present in the Christians among St. Louis as it is right now in the Christians in Kathmandu. But this church is also uh, much more immediate. It's much more you could say flesh and blood than that. Much more down to earth than that. Literally. It's not just universal. We, we must not miss this. God's kingdom, his power, touches down and breaks through, not just in theory, but in actuality in the families where this family, this universal family, gathers. The universal church, how is it shown off? How is it manifest? How is it demonstrated? Where do we know? Where can we point to and say, there it is. In the local churches that God gives birth to, including this one, God's kingdom, his power, touches down and breaks through again in local churches, which make up the universal one, including this one right here, in reality, meeting on May 8th at 8512 Morgan Ford Road, today. To put this differently, let me ask you, because I've been asked this many times, just and many of you say, I just wish I could connect with God. I just want to hear from him. I want to experience him. My question to them is, are you a part of a local church? Well, what does that have to do with it? Well, according to the Bible, everything. You want to experience God, go to the place he has determined to show up among you. We'll get to this more in the coming weeks, but this is why belonging in a public covenantally committed way to a real local church not to a youtube channel is so important here right now among you god himself is showing up this is his house not this building but among the flesh and blood believers in this place who have been bound to jesus and therefore bound to one another this is why it does uh, not and will not make sense to, oh, I should say, uh, let me say that differently. It does and does not make sense to
to say the phrase I have heard so often, I love Jesus, just not the church. You know what that's like? That's like saying, Evan, I really like you. I just don't like your wife. You're picking a fight, my friend. That's what Jesus says when we say such things. If you love Jesus and you take him seriously at his word, do you take his word on this thing? This thing he is committed to, this thing he loves, this thing he laid down his life for to make beautiful. Honestly, it's shocking. I, I, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around with uh, this, I, I know, but please hear me. I don't, I don't mean to discount what history you've had with the church. I want to be very honest about that. I've said it's messy, perhaps here even in our church. I don't know what your history has been, but God if God is the one who is committed to its life and vibrancy, if Jesus is the one who builds the thing, if this is where he is determined to show up and show off, perhaps we should watch the way we talk about it. It's one thing to talk about being hurt by Christians. It's quite another to slander his church. The church is something bigger, more beautiful, more transcendental than any of the individuals who are joined to it bigger, more heavenly than meets the eye. And it is in being added to a church, in growing to depend upon one another within that church, that Christians are actually made beautiful themselves. Of course, we are all, I've put this to others, before, we are all recovering hypocrites, to be honest. All of us, recovering hypocrites, including me. Means that we shouldn't be boasting about it. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a hypocrite, I know it. As if we didn't want to change. We're saying, I don't like that. I want to change that. But we're not pretending to be perfect. Like, I need God's help. But how is it that you grow up? According to the Bible, it's in belonging in an authentic way among a people who are not like you, who buffet you, who push back on you, who hold you accountable, who have difficult conversations, who cheer you on and encourage you, who celebrate with you in your joys and mourn with you in your sorrows. Of course, again, the church is and always will be of profound value to Christ, and if that is true, it should be to us as well, and perhaps that just means simply for you, it's time to give the church another chance. I know it's difficult to wrap our minds around these things. It's shocking, in fact, based on how messy and simple things so often appear in communities like this one. It is difficult to believe, but the reason Peter can make such extreme promises about what the church is has to do with what the church is actually built upon. And it, there, again, let me say that again. What The reason he can make such extreme promises about what's happening here isn't because of you and me. It's because of what the church is built upon, something better. It leads to our second question, how is God building it? And I want to look now to verses 4 and 5. If you would look at your passage, the very first two verses that we read, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So how is it that this house is built and someone is joined to it? Is it a, their uh, agreed upon rules of behavior? Is that what binds the church together? Is it shared preferences or opinions no, it's, and thankfully, friends, it is built on something much, much better. 
What does our verse say? The very first five words of this passage. As you come to him. In other words, what it means to be a church person, no matter how long you have been here or not, is to come to Jesus himself. Anyone, and I mean anyone who will do that, will find themselves added to what God is building. Even if it, you feel like this is the most uncomfortable place you could ever belong. If you come to him if, him, if he is the one you are coming for, he is adding you into a wonderful mystery. The glorious mystery we sing about sometimes on Sunday mornings. This, this family, this building project, this presence, uh, this place of the presence of the living God. He is adding you and sweeping you up into it. If you come to him. Fitting with this whole building metaphor, Peter calls Jesus a living stone. Sounds like a band name, doesn't it? The living stone, right? Uh, in, in fact, quoting from Isaiah 28, he calls him the cornerstone, which may or may not be an image that you are familiar with. How many of you have ever heard of a cornerstone? If you ever go to the, well, okay, I'm going to skip that illustration for now. When I, when I was, uh, I remember building houses in Mexico on a missions trip uh, when I was a teenager, and uh, let me tell you, it is dangerous work, let's just say that, to entrust high schoolers to build a house, right, regardless if it's free labor or not. Uh, the final product, I'm uh, sad to say, showed it as well. Um, you see, while the roof joists married perfectly on one corner, they were about six inches off on the other side. It gives you a lot of confidence in, the, in my basement renovations, doesn't it? <laughs> A similar result would take place if you and I had a flawed cornerstone. In an ancient world, a cornerstone set the trajectory for the walls. It was the first stone to be laid. Every stone would be following its corners. The weight of it would rest entirely upon it. The same uh, word is used of a center of an arch, where all of the weight sits. Mess that stone up by a degree. And you threaten the whole integrity of the thing, the whole integrity of the structure. Do you see why it's so important? What we're built upon matters? That it's trustworthy? That it's not going to fracture? It's not misleading? It's not off even by a degree? Christians are being laid as brick upon brick upon a strong and perfect cornerstone who is Jesus himself. Just like your family, God's family is messy. But as this family sets its sight on Christ, it is built up into something beautiful, something substantial, something that would be built generation after generation after generation. Now, again, this month, um, I was listening to the news and leaders from another prominent uh, denomination. It's interesting. I used this illustration, I think, about a year ago, and it was a different denomination at this point. I heard it again this week, another prominent denomination looking at their declining membership and attendance that was panicking over the survival of their particular church argued that the way to save the future of their church was to adjust their doctrine for modern times. It's not an uncommon argument. I mean, it's many of the convictions of Christians seem particularly back backwards today. The Bible will always pick fights with us. Just look at any culture and I can and any time, and I can tell you the ways that it picked fights with them and does in cultures that are not like ours today, but it's picking fights. Friedrich Schleiermacher, what a name, Friedrich Schleiermacher, argued at the beginning of the 20th century 
uh, that uh, churches needed to do this to preserve their future over a century ago, that they needed to adjust their doctrine if they were going to survive. But the problem is, as we've found now a hundred years later, and shouldn't surprise us, it doesn't work. It doesn't end up actually being a sufficient growth strategy. The churches that actually took that advice and adjust, adjusted their doctrine and ran far afield from the cornerstone that changed what they believed and emphasized about him. You know where they sit today? Largely empty. Friends, the church does not survive by flexing its theology according to the changing winds of culture. Rather, it survives by rooting its beliefs even more deeply in the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ, of holding fast to that, of rooting itself in it, regardless of the cost, of protecting and promoting it. It's one of the reasons that you are always going to hear Jesus preached from this pulpit. And every song that we pick is going to be birthed from the scriptures, most of them centering and orbiting around the risen and reigning Christ. It's why, actually, starting this week, we're going to do something additional, something that may sound a little bit strange, depending on how you grew up. Uh, We're going to begin to introduce something called the Apostles' Creed. How many of you have ever heard of the Apostles' Creed before? That's great, actually. I'm so grateful to hear that. Praise the Lord. I've, uh, many of my peers, Apostles, what? Okay, the Apostles' Creed is uh, an ancient summary of our Christian heritage, of what Christians believe. It's called the Apostles' Creed because it's built upon the Apostles' testimony, what they taught. Uh, it's a, if you, anybody familiar with spark notes in school, it's like basically a, I don't have time to read the book, so I'm going to go and cheat and read the, the summary version. Not that I ever did something like that. Uh, spark notes version of the, this is of the basic beliefs of Christian faith that united Christians throughout the centuries. What's remarkable about this particular one, the oldest version goes back to something like 324 BC, if I'm getting my, not BC, AD, sorry. BC would be before Christ. Impossible. So 324 AD, uh, and it was something that was taught before the Great Schism and before the Protestant Reformation. In other words, it was a common confession that united Christians at a very difficult time in which a lot threatened to divide them, and it was, it was one of the central statements that united them. Christians, before there were Catholics, before there were Eastern Orthodox, and before there were Protestants, recited the Apostles' Creed together. It is a summary of the basic beliefs that unite Christians throughout the world and across the centuries, and has been still recited in many churches today. In fact, um, I've got a book here in case you uh, are interested. In fact, the first person who comes and says, hey, I will actually read that. I'll give this to you, okay? So this is from uh, Al Mohler, uh, who is the, pr- the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, on this creed, on each line of the creed, and what it means, and why it's so important for the church today. So some of you are like, is this even a Baptist thing? Well, I sure hope so, coming from a Baptist seminary president. Uh, it's very, very helpful, uh, and so, uh, but nonetheless, um, the Christians have been reciting this for over 1,500 years as a summary of the faith that they guard together. And you know what beats at the heart of this creed? Christ, the cornerstone. And I want to put it on the screen. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to read this, and I want, you to, I want you to listen with me this time. We're going to recite this later, if you're comfortable, um, as many Christians do today. Uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, 
was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. What a powerful summary that Christians have been reciting together, generations, saying, we have to hold fast to this. This is what we are built upon. In fact, I want you to notice the intentional ordering. Can we put some of the, starting with, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Notice these lines. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Wonderful, beautiful, glorious things. You know what all of them flow from? What Jesus himself has done. The ordering there is intentional. Without the gospel, none of those things come to us. The church, as one of the precious gifts, is the product of Christ himself. All of these rich gifts poured out upon the believer, including the church. And how do all of them come? They come through the cornerstone. No one is like him, chosen by God and precious beyond comparison. And our response to him makes all the difference in the world. You know, our passage assumes that actually this this question is what all of us will be evaluated on. No matter how you have come here today, no matter how you identify yourself religiously, no matter what background you come from or what you feel like you do or do not have to offer God, no matter how, uh, no matter if you have, if, how long you have been a Baptist, no, ma- no matter if you are a Baptist, the question all of us will be evaluated on is what we have done with Jesus himself. Have you ever navigated stairs in the dark? You ever missed a step along the way? Uh, you stub your toe? Sometimes it can be deadly, can't it? According to Peter, Jesus is the same. The same cornerstone upon which this new dwelling for God is being built is also a stumbling block and a deadly one at that. According to Peter, when it comes to Jesus, there really are only two options. Either we will stumble over him, taking offense at what he says about me, rejecting the claims that he makes upon my life, and finally disobeying his call to come. I know many who consider themselves Christians that actually end up stumbling over Christ. Or we will come to him. We will rest upon him. We will offer ourselves body and soul into his service and so be built into something much bigger than any one of us. According to Peter, do you notice there's no middle ground? There is only two paths and they go in different directions. Peter is very black and white about it. There is, there's, no, is, there's, no, it there's no merely being interested in Jesus. There is no merely being impressed in what he has to say. It is not enough even to believe that he existed or that he was died or he was raised. There is only resting upon him or tripping over him. You are either built upon him as a cornerstone or you will stumble over him as the rock of offense. The latter path is the doomed one, destined for eternal heartache, according to the Bible. In the end, that path leads only to shame. 
What a powerful world, word. And it actually goes back to the beginning pages of the Bible. An unrelenting destiny of trying to cover up and hide yourself and being unable to do so. Just as Adam and Eve did first in the garden. That is the end of that doomed path. Here's here, here Peter's warning, friends. The outcome of that path is certain, determined. You cannot continue to hold off Christ forever. However, the spotlight in what Peter says is upon the former path. Those who come to Jesus, who rest upon Jesus, not only will they not be put to shame, honor and glorious purpose awaits them. Which leads to our third and final question. How can we experience any of this? After all, many of us, many of us who are now skeptical about the church, let alone this church, really skeptical that this place really is the place where God shows off his presence and power. I mean, it just feels like, just like, okay, that sounds wonderful and lovely. If it was like a Disney movie and they lived happily ever after, surely that's not actually the case. If it weren't, if we didn't have some skepticism whether that was true, honestly, we would be more invested in it than we are right now. And I can understand why we maintain some of that distance. As I already mentioned, it's getting more costly to publicly identify as a Christian, let alone to identify with a local church. Not as costly as it was for many Christians around the world. It is right now, mind you, but the costs are increasing nonetheless. But it's not just external pressures that we are facing. It's internal ones, and sometimes those can even be more powerful, if we're honest. It can, just to be honest, it can be really difficult to belong together to really be together with these people. There are all sorts of personalities here. Let's just, again, be honest. And ages and backgrounds and bank accounts, we can, we can pretend like all of those things don't actually affect our relationships and how close we feel to those who are around us, but they do. We have all sorts of preferences about what songs we should be singing on a Sunday or how a pastor should be spending his time. Some of you would be shocked to hear what the person next to you thinks about racism and policing or about COVID or masking or the president or the Supreme Court. Some of you are like, no, I'm, I'm not surprised at all. They talk about it all the time, actually. Have you read their Facebook feed? We're in a time in which everyone also is polarizing, expecting that everyone is going to take a stand on everything, including in our churches, and if they don't, or if they do, we can then label who is and who is not on the right side, who can or cannot be trusted, who, again, is or is not on the right side, even of history itself. And this poison of judgmentalism has seeped right back into the church. Not to mention some of you have been really hurt by the people in this room, so, so much so you might have even promised yourself that you would never depend upon church people again. You know as well as I have how religious people can often be more cruel than those who are not. And just be honest, we're, we are as well. It reminds me of what Peter has to say right before this passage in verse 1, when he tells them to put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Let me ask you, why would he have to point that out unless those things were already showing up in their church. Isn't it good to know that we're not alone in some of the things that show up in a local church? That Christians have always faced a variety of pressures, both external and then often very internal. Things that threaten to break up the very thing that God is building together. Belonging together is hard, isn't it? And yet Peter 
And the other biblical writers assume that we would do it and do it authentically. In 1 Peter 1, verse 22, a few verses before this, he says, having purified your souls for obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly and from a pure heart. Why would he have to say that unless that was really difficult for them to have too? Earnestly means honestly, as in not faked. And pure love means a love without hidden intentions, free of manipulations and demands. Peter expects full and felt love among Christians as the cl only the closest of brothers and sisters could have for one another. A love that, like mortar, binds bricks together, bricks which rest upon one another. Shake one brick and the others shake. Remove one brick and the others crumble. What force could be that binding? What could motivate believers to press past all that they differ on, to surrender preferences, even rights for each other, to hold together differing opinions on things that really do matter without breaking apart. What could bind a body together to do what we can't see happening in the rest of the world right now? What force could cause them to hold fast to Christ and to one another even as the costs increase? I'll tell you what it can't be. That force can't be our fickle preferences and opinions and alliances. It does not work. It can't be how much we hold in common. In fact, the more diverse our body grows, which is the sign of a healthy church, where people who are coming from all different walks of life, the less we are going to be able to hold in common, actually. No, it has to be something stronger, something more enduring. Only the gospel will do. And the gospel gives us two things. The gospel gives us, one, a common status, and two, a common mission. Common status. You see, despite all the external threats that we can and soon might face, according to the Bible, Christians have received a common status. Notice how Peter describes these believers, these fellow church members in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, for his own possession. These labels, which might be lost on us, wouldn't have been lost for Peter's Jewish readers. In fact, it's a direct reference to Exodus chapter 19, just a few chapters after the chapters we read in Exodus in the previous weeks, where God describes the plans he has now for the people he has delivered from Egypt. He's brought out and brought to himself. They would be to him like no other people, they would be his called out ones. They would be set apart by him and for him. They would be the apple of his eye. He would sing over them, you belong to me and I'm happy about it. This is what Peter says when he means when he says the honor is for those who believe. Honor is bound up with the living stone. They would be chosen and precious just as Jesus is chosen and precious. A new status. They would be living stones as he is a living stone. They would share in the honor and glory of the almighty son of God, the Lord of the world. No matter, let me put this differently, no matter what would be said about them or done against them, nothing would steal that honor away. Friends, no matter what is said against you or done against you as a Christian, regardless of what the future might hold, that honor cannot be stolen away. This is why Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing what? Honor. 
he tells them to show another honor. Because they've earned it? No. But because Christ himself deserves it. And he has said about that person that you have a difficult time with, they are chosen and precious to me. They are as necessary to what I am building as you are. The gospel, in other words, will not allow us to marginalize or trivialize or tear one another down. Instead, it gives us a common status and a reason for honor. But it also gives us a common mission. Did you notice the rest of verse 9? Again, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you notice the that there? That you may proclaim. It's purpose. That God has chosen you, made you this new people. Why? That you might proclaim the excellencies of the one who brought you out of darkness, the one who made you his people, the one who gave you great mercy, that you might never be able to shut up about it. This is connected back to verse 5, where Christians, he says, are a new and holy priesthood, being built up in order to, again, hear purpose there, in order to offer what Peter describes as spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. The images, again, rush by us at 100 miles an hour. But what they are saying is that God has a purpose in binding us together into his dwelling place. He has, he has intents for us to devote ourselves to something. How would we experience God showing up in presence and power? By showing and telling what he has done to anyone who would hear it. It is not our common interests. It is declaring his excellencies that causes the Spirit of God to show forth in this place. We are forever a worshiping community, in other words, who worship in song, but also in holiness of obedience, the love of our community, and in our public evangelism. This is why you see these core values on our stage. These aren't just meaningless throwaways. These are what we unite around. It's Worship, community, and mission, all centered upon the gospel. This is how we are built together, yes, but this is actually how our faith goes public, where we offer these spiritual sacrifices that Christ might receive the worship he deserves. We are a family that's been called together for one purpose, to declare his excellence and devote ourselves to a community being built upon it. I want to give you one more reason why this is so practically significant, friends. If this is true, it means this, this actually helps us to determine how to spend our time, our money, and resources, our emotional energies to frame what we do and when we do it. It leads us to ask, yeah, that may be a good thing, but is it about this? Does it bring glory to God, greater glory to Christ? Does it proclaim his excellencies all the louder or less? It also helps us to pick our battles. In a time where we're picking battles all the time, we're distancing and dividing, we're throwing people out, it helps us to choose what we fight for and how we fight for it. Not every hill is worth dying on, friends. There are some issues you will not be able to resolve with those who are here, that you will have ongoing conversations, and I encourage you to do so because they matter. But our intensity should correspond, one, to how clearly the scriptures speak about it, and there are many things that we are dying on that the scriptures do not speak clearly to. 
and how much this affects the gospel we are responsible to proclaim. If we argue, if we push, if we encourage, if we're uniting around anything and saying we must do that thing, does it directly pertain to the gospel or a preference? When we disagree, knowing who we belong to and what he has made us for helps us not make an important issue into an ultimate one or argue as if our primary belonging were to something other than Christ and his people. Common status and common mission. This is what Jesus has gifted us, and it is how we are being built upon him. This place might be truly a place where God's presence and power would break through. The home where heaven touches earth. My home is, or this song, I want to read some lyrics that we're about to sing. My home is built on nothing less. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest ring, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. Father, we come to you as those who are being built into your dwelling place, and we could sing, I could spend hours talking about these things and still not walking in step with them myself. I pray that we're beginning to see why the church matters to you, it's of precious importance to you, and what it means to be bound to it, to be considered chosen and precious to God, as chosen and precious as Jesus himself is swept into his story, singing his praise, proclaiming his excellencies. Would that be what anyone encounters in this church and what binds us together? Would we leave beside silly controversies and divisions? Would we fight fair? Would we fight over the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would we hold fast to it regardless of the cost? And would be this, this be a place where people clearly say, God is among you. This is a place where heaven touches earth. We pray all this for the matchless name of Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Amen.